starting at disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit on my, at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Indeed, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must, uh, slave of all, must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to be served, sorry, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he is calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. And we give thanks for this. Tenzin Norgay climbs Mount Everest. Uh, the first men to climb the highest mountain in the world. In 1958, he was part of a team that made an overland crossing of Antarctica via the South Pole. Uh, both of those achievements were great achievements, uh, remarkable tests of human skill and endurance. 
I guess you'd have to say that there would be few people that have lived, at least in our lifetime, who would know more about climbing mountains and trekking across snow and ice than Sir Edmund Hillary. But one man thought he knew more than Sir Edmund Hillary. Uh, the story is that one day Hillary uh, was back in the Himalayas and he was uh, walking along a walking track and some tourists that were on the track spotted him and recognised him. And they uh, introduced themselves to him. They asked if he would mind if they took a photograph of them with him. And just so that he looked the park uh, before the photo was taken, they handed him an ice pick. And then they were about to take the photograph when another group of tourists sort of passed by them and one of, the, uh, one of the other tourists who didn't recognise who the man in the centre of this uh, photograph was uh, walked up to him and uh, said, uh, excuse me mate, um, uh, that's not the way that you hold a pick. Uh, let me show you how you hold it properly. And apparently everyone, everyone was just kind of stunned, like the guy didn't know who he was talking to, but uh, Edmund Hillary uh, allowed the man to adjust his ice pick for him and then he thanked him for his help uh, before the fellow walked away and the photo was taken. Now, you've you got to say that that was a combination of greatness mixed with humility, wouldn't you? Because he, he could have said to the guy, look, mate, uh, you don't know what you're talking about or uh, do you know who you're talking to? Do you know who I am? But instead of putting the man down and humiliated him, he... Uh, was gracious towards him and he was humble and he was thankful. Uh, he treated the man with respect. Now, humility is something which our society could do with a little bit more of, don't you reckon? Uh, we live in a society where, you know, every, every night on the TV we see politicians shouting at each other. Uh, we live in a society, in a culture, where uh, many of us have seen and perhaps experienced uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the concept of people trampling on, on, on others uh, in the workplace as they're trying to get ahead and to get position and promotion and so on. And we live in a society where we tend to value people uh, according to what they achieve uh, in sport or in their uh, careers or in their wealth. Uh, we value people according to those things uh, rather than according to their character and rather than according to the way that they treat other people, which is what makes the example of Edmund Hillary something which is actually noteworthy, a great achiever who was also humble. Now, in today's Bible passage, we see that humility was something which the disciples of Jesus needed a little bit more of. Uh, and we pick it up in chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel in verse 32 where Jesus, and his, Jesus is leading his disciples and a group of other followers uh, along the road that would lead them to Jerusalem. And uh, there was something which was going on uh, in their hearts because in verse 32 we're told that the disciples were astonished and that uh, the people who were following them uh, were afraid. Now, Mark doesn't elaborate exactly why they were astonished or why they were afraid, but perhaps it's because uh, they uh, had an expectation. 
And their expectation was that when Jesus got to Jerusalem, that he would lead a revolt which would mean the establishment of, uh, of God's kingdom uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, perhaps it's because they thought that it was a little bit too soon uh, or perhaps it's because they knew that they were on the, press, on, the, on, on, the, on the edge of something great that was about to happen. But uh, they, were, they were feeling uh, afraid. They were feeling concerned. But what should have shocked them was actually what Jesus said to them next. Because in verses 33 to 34, Jesus takes the 12 disciples aside and he lays out for them the plan for the future about what will happen when they get to Jerusalem. And uh, what will happen? Well, the Son of Man will be betrayed. uh, And that should have shocked them because when you think about betrayal, uh, who is it who can betray someone? What kind of person could betray, say, yourself? Uh, It's not usually someone who you know to be an enemy who betrays you. Uh, That's just an enemy being an enemy. But when you're betrayed, you're usually betrayed by a a friend. And who were Jesus' friends? Well, it was the twelve. So it really should have shocked them when Jesus said that he would be betrayed because it's saying that one of them would hand him over to the Gentiles uh, who would mock him, who would spit on him, who would whip him and who would kill him. And then three days later he would rise from the dead. Now, he's told them this twice already in Mark's Gospel. It should, it should have really shocked them what he was saying. But it seemed to just go in, every time he told them this, it just went in one ear and straight out the other. Uh, and and the, there was a reason for that. And the, the problem seems to be that Jesus kept on referring himself uh, to himself as the Son of Man. Did you notice that? He actually talks in the third person. He, does, he doesn't say, when, when we get to Jerusalem, I will be betrayed, I will be handed over, I will be spat on and mocked and, and so on. He says, the Son of Man. Uh, these things will happen to the Son of Man. And that's a very important title because... Way back in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel had a vision and he saw one who was like the son of man who was uh, described as a mighty king whose uh, description actually defies description. His greatness was so incredibly great. He was a king of a kingdom that was heavenly, a kingdom that would never end, a kingdom uh, whereby he would be worshipped by all nations. And so Jesus, by his words, by his actions, by his miracles, has been showing that he actually is that son of man. And so as they head towards Jerusalem, the disciples know that they are poised at a momentous event in history when the kingdom of God would be established. And so all this talk about being betrayed and about being mocked and ridiculed and and whipped and put to death, they don't know what to make of it. And so they just put it uh, to one side. In fact, uh, the last time Jesus uh, mentioned that in chapter 9, uh, it says that they, they didn't understand what he was talking about and they decided not to ask him about it either. 
So they're just putting that, that teaching to one side. And what they're thinking is that Jesus is going to lead a revolt against the Romans and set up an earthly kingdom. That's why in the next passage that you see in Mark's Gospel not dealing with, which uh, normally churches actually do deal with on this particular Sunday, uh, when Jesus arrives in, in Jerusalem, people think it's a triumph. They think that the, uh, the kingdom of God is about to be established in that earthly sense. So that's what they're thinking. That's what they're anticipating. So in verse 35, two ambitious disciples, um, the brothers James and John, they decide that to take Jesus aside and have a little bit of a quiet word with him while the other disciples aren't looking. And check out what they say. They say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Really? That's the way that you would speak to Jesus? And, and Jesus says, well, okay, I mean, let's talk about that. But you see, how do James and John view greatness? Uh, they go on by saying, when you establish your kingdom, how about making one of us your, your deputy prime minister and the other one uh, your treasurer? Uh, how about giving us the top jobs. Now, I imagine there's a bit of that sort of stuff going on in Canberra at the moment with a few vacancies that have been created during the week, a bit of jockeying for position. But you see, how do they view greatness? They think that greatness is about status, about power, about prestige, about glory. Who are they thinking of? They're thinking of themselves. They want the top jobs. So how did Jesus respond? Well, check out verse 38. In verse 38 to 40, uh, Jesus says, You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Um, Jesus uh, says here that there are certain things which are not part of his role as, as the second person of the Holy Trinity. Uh, there are some things which Jesus chooses not to know. He chooses not to know the date of his return. Uh, these things are part of the Father's role. And here it is the Father's role to appoint uh, those uh, positions but what, what I want to draw your attention to is what he says about drinking and being baptised uh, in the Bible to drink from someone's cup was not actually a pleasant experience because what it meant it was a metaphor for sharing in someone's fate and Jesus has already just outlined for them what his fate would be, that he would be betrayed, that he would be mocked and ridiculed and whipped and he would be killed. Um, do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, when Jesus alone, uh, as he's facing the, the, the imminent uh, prospect of being betrayed and going to the cross and he prays to God the Father and he says, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. 
Uh, and uh, so his cup is his fate. His cup uh, is his suffering. And, and he says to, to James and John, can you be baptised with the baptism that I am baptised with? Now, in the uh, Bible, to be baptised means to be immersed. It means to be overwhelmed. What he's saying to them is, you want to share in my glory, can you share with me in my suffering? And their answer to that question is, we can. Of course we can. No worries, no dramas. We can, we, we, we can go along. They don't know what they're talking about, do they? They just don't understand. Now, you know, of course, uh, it, it wasn't just these two. Because in verse 41, when the other ten disciples got wind of the fact that James and John had taken Jesus aside secretly and what they had asked of him, how did the other disciples react? They, they were indignant, weren't they? It's like, humph, how dare they? <laughs> they got in there before us. And so this was a problem for the disciples. Uh, in fact, uh, back in, um, in, 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 uh, in chapter 9, I think, in chapter 9, verse 34, uh, all 12 of the disciples had been involved in having an argument with one another. And when Jesus said to them, hey, what were you arguing about, as if he didn't know, uh, they didn't want to tell him because they were having an argument amongst themselves about which of them was the greatest. <laughs> And so a lesson in humility wouldn't go astray, and that's what's needed here. Have a look in verse 42. In verse 42, uh, Jesus says to them, he calls them all together, and he says, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now, I think it's, it's a bit difficult for you and I to appreciate just how radical Jesus' teaching was uh, in this regard, in respect to humility. Because Although our society does drive us to think of greatness in terms of our success and our achievements and our power and our wealth, our society does still nevertheless respect a certain amount of humility. Um, but that's partly because for the past 2,000 years, Western culture has been shaped by the teaching and the example of Jesus, that we actually respect humility. It wasn't so in the first century, in the ancient world, in what they call the ancient world of the Greeks and the Romans. Uh, the, the ancient Greeks and Romans considered humility to be somewhat of a weakness uh, and boasting was considered to be a strength. Uh, they lived in an honour-shame society where Part of the goal in life was to bring honour to your name and bring honour to your family and to your household and to avoid things which would be shameful and would, would, which would bring shame to your family. And, uh, you know, in our society, um, if uh, someone in your family achieves something which you're pretty happy about, you know what it's like? You, kinda, you want to tell everyone about it, don't you? But you don't want to appear to be too boastful. 
You, you experience that dilemma? Yeah. Okay, well, that wasn't an issue for the ancients. Uh, they would actually write lists of all of the things which were really good about themselves. Uh, they would, uh, the wealthy people would write and publish lists of everything that they had achieved. And that was not considered to be inappropriate. Things which you and I would cringe at, we could th we'd think, uh, hey, surely that was written by someone else about that person, but no, it was written by the person about that person. And they saw that as a good thing because life was about achieving honour and avoiding shame. And in terms of humility, um, they would be humble towards their gods, more because they believed that their gods could kill them. They would be humble towards the emperor for pretty much the same reason. Uh, to be humble amongst equals, well, maybe. But to be humble towards someone who is lower than yourself, well, no. Uh, that would be shameful. That was not on. And the Roman Empire was a hierarchy. Um, we know that of the local rulers in Palestine, uh, we know that uh, Pontius Pilate, Pilate ruled in, in Judea and, and uh, Herod Antipas and uh, Herod Philip. Uh, these were the rulers who exploited the people through the taxation system uh, and lived sumptuous lifestyles at the expense of the ordinary people. But they were only middle management. They were siphoning up the wealth uh, to, to send it to Rome uh, so that, uh, because they were under the authority of the Caesar. And every coin which was used in the empire, such as the denarius, would have imprinted on it a portrait of Caesar. So that every time uh, you went to buy something, every time you reached into your purse or into your wallet or your pocket, you were reminded of exactly who was the boss. That's why they put the monarch's head on coins, a daily reminder of the hierarchical power structure. And so in verses 43 to 44, Jesus takes that model of greatness and what does he do with it? He flips it. He turns it upside down. Uh, you want to be great in God's kingdom? You want to be number one? Well, how about becoming a slave? How about becoming a servant? Now, how much prestige does a slave have? Exactly none. Uh, what does a servant do? A servant serves the interests of other people. And this is the radical teaching of Jesus, which we don't appreciate just how radical it was in his day. Now, does that mean that Christians should never hold positions of power and authority? Well, no. I mean, there is rightful authority in the way that society orders itself. It's not a question of whether you have authority. It's a matter of how you use that authority that counts. Uh, in the New Testament church, some of the Christians were slave masters. They owned slaves. Um, were they commanded to give up their slaves? Uh, were they commanded to swap positions with their slaves? 
No, not at all. Uh, in uh, Philippians, in Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 4, what they are commanded to, to do is to take that radical step to do something which was unheard of in their society and to actually be humble towards their slaves and to treat their slaves with respect. That was a big shift uh, in people's thinking, a big shift in culture, but it is the natural consequence of being a follower of Jesus. Because in one of the most um, stunning and beautiful statements in the whole of the, of the Bible, in verse 45, Jesus says this. He says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, just think about that for a moment. The Son of Man, the one whom Daniel saw in his vision, in the splendour of his majestic heavenly glory, the Son of Man, the one who Peter, and by the way, James and John, had seen transfigured alongside with Moses and Elijah on the mountain, uh, the Son of Man, whose kingdom is greater than the kingdom of any Caesar, by the way, it's much greater than our little kingdoms that we build around ourselves as well. What he's saying is that that one, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, well, he actually became a servant. He became a slave. And he died, would die on a cross in order to be a ransom for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins, which we'll be talking about much more on Friday uh, at the service here. Now, one of the lowest people in ancient society was the beggar. Uh, and people became beggars because, generally because they were disabled or they had leprosy. Uh, there was a blind man in, in verses 46 to 52 uh, we see an example of just how disrespected uh, beggars were. Uh, this, this blind man, his name is Bartimaeus, which, by the way, it's Bar-Timaeus. That means son of Timaeus. And he's blind and he's a beggar and he's along the, sitting on the roadside when he hears that, the, that Jesus is actually coming past and what does he do? He calls out to Jesus to get Jesus' attention. But what did the other people think about that? Well, in verse 48, what did they do? They rebuked him. They said to him, keep your mouth shut. Uh, be quiet. Now, who do you think you are? Why would Jesus want to, What right have you got? Friends, what right have any of us got to gain the attention of Jesus? When James and John took Jesus aside, what did they want? They wanted power, glory, honour, prestige. When blind Bartimaeus wanted the attention of Jesus, what did he want? In verse 48, he says, I want mercy. Son of David, have mercy on me. And then in verse 51, 
Jesus asked him the very same question that Jesus had asked to James and John. What do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus says, well, I wouldn't mind being able to see. That would be really good. And Jesus heals him. What attitude do we have in approaching Jesus? Uh, Do we have the attitude of the disciples who thought that they were worthy and wanted Jesus just to give them glory? Or do we have the attitude of Bartimaeus who didn't consider him to to be worthy and just wanted mercy? Well, that's how we should approach Jesus, as sinners in need of mercy. And if we've received that mercy through his death on the cross, then our self-centred thinking uh, about our own importance really should crumble. Now, James and John actually came to understand that in due time. After the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, where they understood what it meant, well, we're told in Acts chapter 12 that uh, James was put to the sword by Herod because of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We know from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, that John uh, was exiled on the island of Patmos because of the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus had promised that one day they would drink his cup, one day they would be baptised with the baptism that he is baptised with. And that was true. Because these men came to realise that true greatness came not from power and prestige, but by putting God first, others second, and themselves last. It was through serving the risen Lord Jesus that they discovered what true greatness was all about. And friends, if we are to be truly great, then we need to be people who serve. We may or may not be rich. We may or may not hold positions of power. We may or may not be great in the eyes of our world. They're not the issues. The issue is, are we humble? Do we spend our our, our lives seeking to serve God and to serve other people by praying for people, by caring for people, by loving people, by telling people about Jesus? by serving other people in the same way that the Son of Man has served us. That's the challenge today. Let's pray about that, shall we? Father, we do thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you for the incredible humility that he had. And we pray that we would have that same attitude and that same mind of Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself and became a man and became a servant and died the most despicable death uh, that he could possibly die, even death on a cross. Father, we acknowledge that Jesus has done that for us. And so we pray that we would put aside our petty ambitions for for self-centred greatness We pray, Father God, that we would not see ourselves more highly than we ought, that we would consider others better than ourselves, 
and that we would seek to serve others in the same way that you in Christ have loved and served us. And we pray these things in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.